for every child, brought to you by UNICEF New Zealand. Welcome to the program. I'm your host, Ethan Donnell, and you're listening to For Every Child, UNICEF New Zealand's radio journey exploring some of the most pressing issues facing children around the world and here in New Zealand. The children of Syria have been fighting for survival. As winter approaches, these same children are now fighting just to stay warm. Where are you listening to this? At home? In the bus? Sitting at work? Imagine, just for a second, that all of that has been ripped away. You've left your home, your job, all your belongings. You're scared. Your children are terrified. But you're the lucky ones. Somehow you've avoided the very worst of the violence that's killed up to half a million of your countrymen and women. Think about that for a second. The population of Christchurch and Hamilton combined, gone. Now you're living on a concrete pad under a makeshift tent in a foreign country, surrounded by strangers. You're not allowed to work, and you can't go home. And as if things couldn't get any worse, you're facing a brutal winter. Your kids are cold, and you have no way of providing for them. That's the reality for two million Syrians living in Lebanon. Well, living is such a subjective term, perhaps surviving would be more accurate. What does every parent want for their child? They want to provide security, right? Happiness, safety, enjoyment. It's not a lot to ask, except imagine not being able to provide any of those things for your children. Imagine how much that must hurt. Lebanon is roughly the same population as New Zealand, although it's much smaller. It's not blessed with rolling hills or plentiful farms. Even so, Lebanon has taken in roughly 2 million Syrians running away from the slaughter in their own country. It's not that they want to leave, it's that they have to. You've seen the ruin and destruction, the smashed cities, the columns of people fleeing. UNICEF New Zealand ambassadors Joe and Gareth Morgan recently visited Lebanon. There they saw firsthand the families affected by this crisis. So what we have is a whole series of small camps, you know, hundreds and hundreds of them. Um, settlements on private land all over Lebanon with the local communities sort of hosting the, their displaced um, you know, compatriots in, um, in Syria. But the stress is, is very high. And we saw two, uh, two um, settlements today, one which was facing pretty tough conditions. So they were in the corner of a farmer's um, farm. And you know, in, in those fields, there was a lack of infrastructure. Um, I mean, they're paying rent, but the rains are coming, and so the, the, the road into the camp is going to flood. The accommodation has no protection, so the water's going to go through the tents, and you're going to get all those issues for these people. So that, that particular group of people, of Syrians, um, families, were pretty highly stressed and really worried about what was coming. Um, I would say that the, the work being done by the agencies is to be applauded, but it's getting more and more challenging just by the sheer numbers here, um, rather than less. It's easy to be discouraged by the enormity of the problem, but Gareth Morgan has a simple message for New Zealanders. While that's still work to be done, um, I think what people, the ordinary people in um, societies like mine, developed countries can do, is just help keep funding these NGOs so they can help what's an enormous displacement of people from their homes. But when your population is pushed up by somewhere between 25 and 50 percent, you know, the stresses show 
and just supplying these, all these extra people with space to live, with food to eat, with sanitation, you know, to clean water, keeping them healthy, giving them health services, giving them clothing, giving them shelter. This is an enormous, enormous burden for the people of Lebanon. So it really is a world crisis, as we all know, and we've all got to chip in, in my view, to support these displaced people, from, especially now from Syria, until you know, issues in Syria are resolved. So the sooner this conflict's over, the better. I think the sooner the stress can come off Lebanon and the Syrian people can obviously um, go home and be happy again. Much like her husband, Jo Morgan spoke about how eye-opening it was to visit these informal settlements and how she was struck by the resilience of the Syrian people. Well, today we've had this most interesting day in Lebanon and we've been to two informal settlements where the refugees from Syria mainly are um, being housed and looked after by the different agencies, especially UNICEF that we're working with. And it's been a, a real eye-opener for, for me. And um, it's just hard to fathom, though, how people can come so far and adapt. And they're adapting from normal lives and normal homes like we in the West live in. And they're suddenly here in tented shelters and they're still maintaining their civility to us and to others, and they're offering us cups of tea and wanting us to join with them whatever they've got. The first camp really sort of was a bit horrifying just because you could see when the water came that everyone who's sleeping on the floor on a, a bit of a mat on the floor, they're going to be flooded out. And I'm not sure these are issues that needed to be settled before winter comes, and um, that will I think test some of the agencies. There's a huge number of people here. There's about two million refugees at the moment that are being catered for here. And not all of them have come immediately. Some have been here for a long time. And these camps that are very primitive with primitive drainage and they're just in a corner of a farmer's field. And it's, it's just really hard to think how they're gonna survive over the winter. It's, um, it's quite disconcerting when you think of this area getting snow and having really cold but short winter. It's, um, it's going to be a real, I think, quite a challenge for the agencies getting people above the waterline over the cold season. You're struck again and again by how fearful everybody is of the coming winter and how unprepared they're feeling despite all the work that's been done. Despite such bleak messages being painted, one can't help but be impressed by some of the work UNICEF is doing. Gareth talks about the amazing education programs he saw. So this second day we're in the Becker Valley. We started the day by going to a school and we talked there to the kids and they were doing it all. They were learning about um, positive messages about life, non-discrimination. They were learning about health looking after themselves. They were learning about violence and how to sort of deal with life's tough lessons here. They made this bracelet here for me, so I was pretty lucky with that. The goodwill that we've seen from Lebanese people with this sort of 30% increase in their population is just absolutely phenomenal. And I think the world needs to congratulate Lebanon for hosting these desperate 
people. These are ordinary people, the same as us. They're retailers, they're farmers, they're whatever. And suddenly everything's gone. Everything they had, the schools for their children, their livelihood, their property, it's all gone. So I, that's what I look at all the time when I go into these tents. I think, this could be me, as much as it is the person that's here. It can be hard to imagine the conditions in many of these settlements. For instance, many families are sleeping on a thin mattress on just a slab of concrete. Joanne describes a meeting with one such family. Mm, I've just been in a tent with uh, a mum with her four children. Her young son had been burnt about 18 months, uh, eight months ago. He was less than a year, or the year at that stage. It's uh, such a basic home that she's in and she's come from a normal, you know, a normal home like most of us live in and here she is in a on a slab of concrete and she's got a couple of plastic mats this sort of thing that um, are on the floor so it gives you a little bit of insulation off the concrete and she's got a pile of very thin mattresses out back that she um, puts out at night for the kids to sleep on and them to sleep on but it hasn't got a nib wall around her concrete pad so in winter and when it rains they're going to be up to their ankles in water probably and there's a whole new series of issues and health issues as well at that stage. It's, it's very unique problems here for the woman and I think part of it is family size and this is a, an area that we've been looking at the mobile medical unit and we, um, or I talked to the doctor there and was asking about how women manage to control their fertility. So there is an arrangement they can come to with the midwife or with the nurses there and can get birth control. And that is helping some of them survive in the camps, knowing they're not going to arrive in the camp and four years later have four more children. There's. Um, you know, the, I think the biggest thing for the woman is just having a nice, peaceful life. For these people to have survived so far has been amazing. The fact that they've got across all this mileage by fair means or foul, legal or illegal, to save the lives, their lives and their children's lives has been absolutely amazing. They are tough people and they're survivors. And, you know, even putting yourself in their shoes for a few minutes, being around a camp, is it's pretty scary stuff if you're thinking this might go on for a few years. I think we, we do need to help. Joe and Gareth Morgan have committed to helping the children of Syria. For every dollar that is donated, they will match up to $100,000. Also, for every dollar that is donated, UNICEF can provide a child with food and clean water. $9 can provide them with a blanket. A bit over 100 bucks will give them everything they need for the winter. Visit our website now to find out more.
Over the border in Syria, our correspondent Nick Dale found out about a program that is helping children in Damascus. Winter is drawing ever closer to the Middle East, which is sure to be a short but deathly freezing. This winter will be an incredibly challenging time for refugee families, many of whom have lost everything whilst fleeing the Syrian civil war. Being a displaced person can attract a great deal of stigma, with children ostracised within their peer groups. Children living in cities like Damascus often feel shamed for wearing clothes provided directly from aid agencies. UNICEF has partnered with retailers in the Middle East to launch an e-voucher program which helps displaced families feel a sense of normalcy. Families used to receive boxes of clothes from aid agencies with little to no choice in size or style. They now receive a card from UNICEF loaded with credit to be redeemed in participating shops in Syria. They use e-vouchers to maintain school clothes for children and jackets for the upcoming winter. UNICEF New Zealand recently visited Syria to observe our e-voucher program in action. We visited Aljwad Company, a small clothing retailer in Damascus. Samar Jabri is using UNICEF's e-voucher for the first time to buy clothes for her children. They are refugees and Samar tells us it covers the essentials for her family. Previously, she would have relied on clothes boxes, but says her and her children prefer better choice. It means a lot to dress her children in new clothes and have better choice than the parcels she would have previously received. Tara is 13 years old. She's visited our job today with her mum and three sisters to pick out a pair of trousers and a top. She likes being able to choose clothes in her family. Tara is very keen to inform us she has taught the school table in Arabic studies. <laughs> Mohammed Akir runs Ajab Company. He tells us he signed into the program through UNICEF when we initially sought partners. For Mohammed, the material profit gained from the e-vouchers themselves is marginal for his business. However, the program brings people into his stores and he likes to see the place filled with happy and appreciative families. The program forms a crucial part of UNICEF New Zealand's aid to the region. UNICEF has been expanding the e-voucher program to help as many refugees as we can reach to prepare for this year's harsh Syrian winter. Our correspondent Patrick Rose learned more about the practicalities of how the program works. Well, basically, uh, beneficiary families, uh, they use a uh, card that's linked to, an to a mobile application uh, that has a credit and a balance in it, uh, and they can and shop. Uh, they can come and shop and select whatever they need of clothes based on the size, the gender, and the uh, needs they have uh, for, for their children. Mm -hmm. And why is this better than just giving them clothes? Because now, like, they can pick and choose themselves. They, we, we don't force in them uh, like irrelevant sizes or, or colors that the children may not like. Children can be picky sometimes, so they don't like uh, to be uh, to have like forced clothes on them. And um, you know, obviously, uh, it's been 
uh, it's been piloted the first year. What's, uh, do you think that it'll continue this program? Uh, I think so. We've received so many uh, good uh, beneficiary uh, feedback on this program and uh, people uh, are liking it. So, And uh, from what we see here, also people like it and wish that uh, it continues. And what's the advantage in terms of like, you know, what difference does good clothing make for children, uh, especially children who are maybe living in the poor conditions. Well, I, I think every every child would like to appear in a good in a good way. They, it will make them feel more confident. It will make them feel uh, uh, well integrated in their society, as well as it will keep them healthy. It will keep them uh, going to school, feeling comfortable and warm during the winter. Our program covers both summer and winter clothes, so it's not only limited to one period uh, of the year. Uh, the other thing is we know that being uh, being uh, warm during the winter will help you access better education will help you uh, will help you will help keeping you in a good health which is also good for all the other aspects of, uh, of life and how does it work with the shopkeepers do they um, have to do it or how do, uh, do they sort of join the program uh, well there are a few selected shops in uh, in uh, the areas that this program is running uh, and they uh, uh, they are contracted by in collaboration with our partners uh, that they uh, uh, they voluntarily uh, willing to collaborate with us. Mm -hmm. Great, and um, you know what? How do you see this? Uh, the, how do you see this uh, project uh, helping mothers? Uh, I think it's relieving a lot of financial pressure uh, from uh, from the families uh, that they uh, they ha they can save this money to use it for other uh, expenditure and uh, other necessary life saving let's say uh, life saving uh, expenses uh, such as uh, medicines, such as uh, bills, utility utility bills, uh, rent, whatever they need, they can uh, they can use the money that they can. Save Buying Great, thank you. Our correspondent, Patrick Rose in Damascus. Dyslexia is something you might have heard about, but maybe don't quite understand what it is exactly or how it affects people. Dyslexia is a learning difficulty which affects a person's ability to read and write, affecting approximately 1 in 10 people. Dyslexia is still very misunderstood, with little known about its causes. It can affect the most academically inclined people and often goes undiagnosed. Nisif spoke to three remarkable young people who shared with us their own struggle with dyslexia. Georgia Perkins is 15 years old, been and attended school in Australia, where a teacher called her stupid. The teacher I had after I left the school in Australia was very anti-dyslexia, and my parents talked to her saying that they think I might be dyslexic, and she just shut the idea down and told them I was stupid, and so she just was really hard on me for a long time. I thought I was just stupid. <laughs> Georgia has difficulty making out words, which held her back at school, 
just looked like a giant alphabet soup and everything was just all over the place, nothing kept still. Like the word, the letters in the middle of words would change places. Up until I was eight, I wrote fluently backwards. So I think the teachers just gave up on trying to get me to write anything because it just came out backwards. I never did homework, I just couldn't do it. This led Georgia down a dark path resulting in arrest. I went off the rails. <laughs> when I started college, I felt really dumb and I was bullied a lot. So I stopped coming to school. I got involved with drugs and alcohol, started smoking, was running away from home, always being arrested, just because I felt stupid at school. One time I can remember I was walking around drunk, like on the streets, and I had run away from home. I think it was my second week away from home and they recognised who I was. So I tried to run, but I was really drunk, so I fell over and I got taken to the cells for the night. And I was scared at that point because I didn't know if I'd ever get out because I didn't know much about the law back then. So. Fortunately, a teacher, Miss Sharp, picked up on what was causing George's problems and acted quickly. I can't even think of the words to explain how grateful I am. Like, because so many people just gave up on me, and Miss Sharp never did. Miss Sharp took, like, her personal time to figure out what exactly I needed to help me learn. She formed a dyslexic form class. She got teachers that were trained for dyslexia. They knew what they were doing. The support was really good. I think they should start testing kids that aren't doing too well early because the kid's not going to know if they're dyslexic or not. It's up to the parents and teachers to find out what the problem is. Georgia Perkins. Matthew Strawbridge is 17 years old. Matthew found reading an ordeal and found ways to cope. The schoolwork was a real struggle. In the very earlier years at school, no one can really read and write and you know it's, it's not as obvious that you have dyslexia until everyone else starts getting it <laughs> and um, you know I can remember now thinking back you know I just must be stupid I can't do it why can everyone else do it and you know my parents tell me it's easy you know everyone tells me it's easy you know how come I'm the only one that can't do it and you know if you can't do these basic things you know such as reading writing spelling handwriting it really takes it out on you you know, talking with the other kids in the classroom, seeing what they're doing. You know, dyslexic kids are really aware of what's going on. And, um, you know, sitting on the class and being able to answer all the questions verbally, you know, but then having to go sit at your desk and just kind of getting lost within the words and not having any, any idea what's going on. <laughs> Matthew's dyslexia went unrecognised. I just felt really sick the whole time at school. And, um, you know, just opening a book was just like opening the, all the things that I can't do. I, I would be sitting in a classroom with a group of others and I would be having to go through in everyone's turn and then it would come to mine and I would just look at the picture and make up the story. <laughs> and then my teacher would go off at me because that's not what was said. But I, I didn't know what was said, you know, I, I couldn't read. And so this was me trying to cope with it, I would try and be funny. Um, I didn't really act out that much personally, but 
that's something that a lot of dyslexics do because it's you know it's much better to be remembered as the funny kid or the, the naughty kid rather than the stupid kid that can't read. For Matthew, learning that he had dyslexia was revelatory. I remember feeling upset and then relieved. My educational psychologist was fantastic. She, she told me all the things I would struggle with and they were all the things that I was struggling with and it was kind of like, okay, this makes sense, but I don't want this, this means I'm stupid, this means that I'll struggle with all those things. And she, she took the time to point out all the things that I was gonna do well in and gonna be able to do better and with more ease than everyone else. And, and I remember, even to this day, something that she said was, remember me when you're famous, Matt, because you've got a big life ahead of you. And this was the first time that someone of, you know, someone who I thought of importance, you know, other than my parents, that, oh, Matt, you're good, don't worry. You know, someone that I thought that, you know, was educated and was smart, said something, a compliment to me. Matthew Strawbridge. Luke Tung is 17 years old. Luke found school to be a physically traumatic experience. The worst time of my life. I remember going to school and just crying because I couldn't do it. You're looking down at the words and everything is just floating around and your head just starts throbbing. Like when you're about to get told off and you know you're in heaps of trouble. Just that feeling because you can't do it and you want to do it so bad. Your brain just works so differently to everyone else's. Luke has a similar story of being stigmatised from lacking scholastic achievement. Someone just saying, how can you not understand that was just the most demoralising thing really. Why can't you do that? With negative connotations comes like people that can't really read or do anything like that academically. I always make mistakes when I'm texting my friends and they just, the worst thing is I reply, they reply, what? I don't understand. However, Luke found an escape through his love of football. At a young age, like, I always remember being able to read the game better than most people. Not being arrogant or anything, just knowing that I could read the game better than other people. When the ball was spinning in the air, I just, or coming from a goal kick, I knew where the ball was going. I always had a ball at my feet in every single photo when I was younger. It just escaped me and it just made me so happy. And no one could judge me when I was on the pitch, when I was passing or shooting or doing everything I love, playing football. No one could judge me. No one knew that I can read or write. I just, they just saw me as a football player. It just felt like I was on top of the world, really. No one could judge me, no one could put me down, even if they did, I knew. I just loved what I was doing. Luke Tung. You can go to dyslexiafoundation.org.nz for a list of New Zealand's major dyslexic service providers. Our correspondent, Nick Dale. That's all the time we have for today's show, but we're always happy to hear from you and really pleased that you joined us. Please feel free to get in touch with me, Ethan at unicef.org.nz. That's Ethan at unicef.org.nz. If you want to find out more about our work to help children in Syria and around the world, really appreciate you joining us here on For Every Child. Please tune in next month when we'll be bringing you more stories about children here in New Zealand and around the world.
for every child brought to you by UNICEF New Zealand.